Hello. Nobody can hear me. Now you can. Okay, cool beans. All right. So, um, turn to your Bibles and to John chapter 18. And rest there in verse number one. Oh, my voice can make it through this. I've been a little sick here lately. Uh, but thank God I have water. And uh, the title of this message is called, it's titled, He Knows. And I came across this, um, the title for this, uh, by uh, reading uh, this passage right here. And I want you just to think for a minute what it means, that phrase means, he knows. Um, Well, what does he know? Um, And just think about that. And uh, a lot of people may have different answers to that. And as we read this, just process that. And just consider that question. And it says, starting in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook of Sidron, where it was a garden, into, uh, into the which he entered and his disciples, and, also, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither uh, with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers, from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh uh, thither with lance, uh, lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? So when I was reading this passage, I read this um, during uh, Easter week. And what stuck out to me is how Jesus asked the question. He says, Whom seek ye? When why would the God of the universe ask that question? Why would Jesus, of all people, ask that question? And yet he did it throughout all the New Testament, well, throughout all the Gospels. And he asked these questions, even though he already knew the answers to them. And that got me pondering, well, what does Jesus truly know? And maybe we all know sort of a broad answer, but I don't think no one's ever really narrowed down into the focus of what he truly knows. So I've divided this up into several sections of what he knows and what he did know and what he will know, what he has always known. But in this portion of the scripture, uh, it shows that Jesus is captured by this band of men. And oftentimes when we look at um, uh, movies of this scene, we'll see just a couple of guards coming to grab Jesus. But actually what a band of men back then were that was a, a group of 300 to 600 soldiers that came to get Jesus. And what, that, that fascinated me. This poor, feeble Jewish man, Carpenter, was, um, he was so, he got the attention of the Pharisees. So, and he, and he, he was so, so feeble for us. He made himself so lowly on this earth for us. Yet, Still, even while on earth, he showed great power in even in the lowly terms that he had here on earth. And it took 300 to 600 men to get him. But still, nonetheless, it only would have took one. It only would have took one guard to get him. Because he had to follow the will of his father, as he said in a couple chapters prior. He knew every hair on the soldiers' heads. He knew them the day they were born. He knew them before they were born. 
He knew exactly their names. He knew their mother and father. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew all those things. And still, his question, whom seek ye? He asked the guards, he says, who do you seek? And it's a question that is sort of derived out of humility. He made himself lowly for us. Why would the God of the universe, of all creation, of all the world, humiliate himself so much to become like a mere man and answer with a mere question? Why did he allow the men to take him like a mere man? Because at any moment, any moment, he could have had all the angels come down and take him up. And in a, blinking, in a twinkling of an eye, he could literally wipe out all the universe if he wanted to. He had that power. He could do it, but he chose not to. And if we read the same account in Luke's gospel, if you turn to Luke chapter 22, in verse number 49, you'll see actually what he does with one of the guards. It says, when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Here it is, these guards coming to capture Jesus, the son of God. And still, even after one of the disciples cut off this uh, the servant or uh, guard's ear, still he healed his ear. Why? Why did he do that? You know, it's funny because I've read this passage many different times, yet I've never asked the question why he did these things. They seem so small, and it, it, it seems like, oh, awesome. Jesus put an ear back on a soldier. That's great. But it's much more than that. See, because... As Christians, I feel like we forget the fact that he was the son of God. He was the son of God. Take that phrase and just dwell on it just for a minute. He was literally the son of God. Okay, we have God, creator of all things, universe, the stars, everything. And we have the son of God that came down, having all the power of God. Is in the Trinity, they're all one, had the same power, and could have did absolutely anything he wanted, but he chose this. He knew these guards were going to take him, and he would be humiliated before men. He'd be humiliated in front of everyone, but still chose to heal this guard. He could have took all of them out in an instant, but he chose not to. Why on earth would he do such a thing? To answer these questions, we need to understand what God has saw throughout history up until this point. So this comes to the first point of what he knew. The first point is he knew he would come. He knew he would come. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we see the first ever prophecy ever in the Bible. And it says this. After um, Adam and Eve had fallen and uh, sin came into the world, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between uh, thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
And I had heard this verse many different times. And it wasn't until about a year ago I truly understood what it meant. And still, there's so much to unpack from it. And I'm sure I'll learn more from it as time goes on. But we have this sort of rivalry. What I had thought before, it was something physical, that there would be birth pains or something like that. But it's something much, much more than that. Notice what it says, but it's, it's going to put enmity, this bitter rivalry between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it will bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, if Satan's a serpent and you step on a serpent, well, you're going to get bruised, right? And what did Jesus do when he died on the cross? He crushed the head of Satan, correct? And he bruised his heel. And here, right now, it was in that time, in the beginning of all creation, when Jesus knew that he was going to come. He was going to come as a man, and he was going to offer himself a sacrifice to the world. He had this all planned before any of us were ever even thought of. You see, Jesus being one with the Father in the Trinity knew he would come as a sacrifice for sin. That is why his heel will be bruised and why the serpent's head will be bruised. Even in the beginning of time, he knew. And the next point is, he knew he would be rejected. And I'd like to return to Isaiah 53. And if you don't turn to any passage today, I want you to turn to this one. This passage has so much meaning and so much. And upon reading it the first time, I would have thought it was in the New Testament. But when I realized where it came from, I realized, wow, this is God's work here. If you, if you go to verse 3 there in Isaiah 53, it says, He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And we'll go on later to read the rest of those verses. But he, he gave Isaiah this prophecy. As he gave many different prophets in the Old Testament. Because he knew he was going to come into that time when he died on the cross. He knew he was going to be born of a virgin. He knew. He knew this time was coming. And as we see in our, our text, in John 18, he's asking these guards again, whom seek ye? And yet he had all this plan prior to ever asking that question. He knew the answer to that question. He knew the answer to the questions they didn't even know how to ask. And while he was talking to them, all this scripture, he knew. All these prophecies, he knew. And I would just have loved to hear Jesus. To hear the way he spoke. Knowing, the, having the knowledge I know I have now of Jesus and talking to him. Knowing that he knew all these prophecies about him and knew what was to come and still spoke the way he did, that would be incredible to hear. The 
God gave this prophecy to the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ had ever been born. Jesus, being also God, told Isaiah this. Christ knew the affliction he would bear. He knew he would be despised and rejected. Yet he knew that he must do it. It was in that garden that we just looked at a minute ago where that first prophecy was made. And the first prophecy was made by God. And if we look actually in chapter 1 of Genesis, we'll see that when, they, when God creates man, it doesn't say, and God said, let me make man in my own image. It says, let us make man in our own image. And that's the Trinity. That's Christ and God and the Holy Spirit all in one there. And they were all there. And they had this all planned out before the foundation of the world. They knew, or he knew. And that's the thing. You can call him they or, or he. It's because they're all one. And if we read in, uh, later on in verses 4 and 5, we see this. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised, there we go, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus carried this scripture to the cross. He carried this prophecy to the cross. Knowing all these prophecies about him, knowing about the cross before the cross ever had been, he knew and he carried that cross on that hill for me and for you. He bore our transgressions and sins alone. Judas had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. He truly was despised. Yet he still knew that all this would happen, but he still continued. That should bring some sort of joy in your heart and some sort of sorrow in your heart. The joy being that he did die for you, that the Son of God truly did die for you, for your sins. But the sorrow being that I was the one who killed him with my sins. And sometimes, when I read through the Gospels, sometimes the language used, just the imagery that the writers used to describe it, of Jesus on the cross, knowing that those nails that held him up there are my sin holding him up there. That should bring some sort of cry to your heart. We've lost this sense of, as Christians, we believe, oh, I've heard this prayer. I'm perfectly fine now. But we then forget that why we're saved and how we're saved. Continue on with that. If you go to John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And this, I, I encourage you if, you, if you have time tonight, go home and read John 17. It's a very beautiful passage in the Bible. 
And this is just a portion of it. It says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this and this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have, glor- I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou uh, gavest me to do, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Starting to see some connections here. This point is titled, He Knew He Would Die. And he's praying to his father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. It's time. And then, if you look at just the first the first part of his prayer right there, it says the hours come and then at the end, what does he say? Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And if that doesn't sort of shock you, the incre- just the connections within this text right here of how he just said, before about how God had made that prophecy that his son would come into the world and die for it and had this bitter rivalry between Satan and man. Here Christ is praying to his father and the hour had come that had been planned before the beginning of time Christ knows the events that are about to take place, yet he is so obedient to his father that he continues anyway, even until the moment he went to the cross. And then if you go back to Luke 22, starting verse 63 now, it says, And the men that held, Jesus, that held Jesus mocked him, smote him, and when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? They're asking a question to the Almighty God. And the humility that is seen in this passage, this portion of Scripture, how Christ has made himself so lowly for us. They're telling him prophesy, but he had prophesied since the beginning of time that this would happen. They're fulfilling what he had already said would happen. Just like in Isaiah 53, verse 3. It's proving that. They smote him. They despised him, mocked him. That didn't surprise him. Because he knew it would happen. He knew it would happen. And he took that cross all alone up there on Calvary. He trekked that road with the stripes that now heal us. And it amazed me how faithful he was to his father. He was perfect. If you're a Christian, if you don't desire to be like Jesus, there's definitely something wrong. Because Jesus is the example we live by. Jesus had the perfect relationship with his father. He was faithful to him. All the time, 
even in the way he prayed, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. How often do you pray that? It's a scary prayer, too. It takes a strong man to pray it, too. Not my will, but yours be done. Your will is good, but that doesn't mean it's always our good, what we think is good. It doesn't mean we'll have the nice luxuries of this life. It may mean we're going overseas to witness to people in China, even if it means getting our head chopped off for it. Where did God's will take Jesus? Took him to the cross, did it? Sure did. Jesus was so selfless when he took the cross and bore it for us. And that brings me to the next to the last point. It's he knows and he knew you. He knows you. He did then and he does now. As a Christian, how does that make you feel? Does it make you want to shout with praise? Does it give you courage to want to go out and proclaim his name? If it does not, I would be greatly careful in calling yourself a Christian. Because once you become a Christian, you realize what it means that he knows you. He knows my name. And my name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's an incredible thing an unworthy thing for all of us. All of us wretched sinners don't deserve that. The God of all things knows me. Better yet, if you are saved, Christ at this very moment is making intercession for you with the Father. He not only knows your names, He's making intercession for you. That's something to drive you to proclaim his name throughout all the world. Not just here. Jesus says in Matthew 28, he says, go either for among all nations. And the problem with the church and Christianity today is that there's not enough proclaiming of his name. You want to know something that might um, ruffle your feathers? You know how we meet maybe we meet two days out of the week uh, for church. Well, the apostles and, and the, uh, the first part of Acts, it says they met daily. The disciples of Jesus met daily. We can barely stand each other for a day, but they met each other daily. And what they do, they wanted to proclaim his name all day long. They weren't worried about what the world thought of them. They weren't worried about luxury cars or luxury carriages back then. I don't know what they had, but they weren't worried about it. They lived for the gospel as we should. And no one I see today is living for the gospel. We say, oh, I I know what the gospel is. it's It's the good news. But what does that mean to you? And if it truly is good news, then why aren't you telling people about it? This brings me to the final point. He knows. Which made a big circle. He knows all things. 
Throughout this message, we've seen how Jesus knew the things that will come upon him. And it makes clear something every Christian ought to know. God's sovereignty. One thing we often forget is the fact of God's power over us and everything that exists. Nothing can stop him. No death, no grave, no stone, no sin, nothing. Satan thought he had won won when Jesus was upon that cross bleeding and crying out, but it was merely just the beginning of Satan's demise. Satan entered Judas to betray Christ, but Christ knew it. You see, Satan does not know he is arrogant and cannot see how how small he is before the great God. Christ knew everything Satan had plotted. He knew from the very beginning, who can stop the Lord God? No one can, not even Satan. No one's going to stop God from achieving his will because he's all powerful and he knows all things. And that's one thing that many of us don't acknowledge in our lives. And it's very evident. Because God's power works within us every day, even though we cannot even see it. You think about it. This guy, not even a guy, a God, knew you before you were ever born. He knew the hairs on your head before you were ever born. He, knew, he knows the molecules and every atom, subatomic particle that makes up your body this very moment. And we just brush that to the side. That's not a, we want the loving God that wants to carry a lamb on his shoulder and have a smile. But no, we have a powerful God that can do anything he wants. And luckily he has shown us what he will do, has done in his word. And this power that God has drives us, should drive us at least, to do more for him. And probably the best example of God's sovereignty and God's power is from a man uh, whose name was Jim Elliot. Not a lot of people may know who Jim Elliot is, but uh, he was a missionary And he was uh, with a a group of his friends, it was five guys, including him, that went to Ecuador to um, witness to the Ecuadorian Indians. And what had happened was they had planned it for years and years and years. And all five men had went and they'd given gifts to the Indians. And what had happened was after doing that for a while, they landed on the... uh, beach where the Indians lived and it turns out as they had socialized with the Indians five tribes came out and killed all of them the funny thing was all five of them had guns never once touched them and what had happened after that is where God's power really comes into play it took those men all young men in their 20s following after what God had told them to do after that, Jim Elliot's father had came to, had found out that his son uh, was killed um, when all five of the bodies had washed up on, on shore someplace else. And the father went to the very place that his son was killed 
and found the exact tribesman that had killed his son. But he didn't do what you would expect him to do. He said this. He, he, he went to the Indian and gave him a hug. And he said, in the name of Jesus, I love you. That's God's power. But better yet, that's not even the end of the story. After he said this, a missionary spot was a missionary spot or location was set up there, and all of the tribe was saved and came to Jesus. All because of one man's faithfulness, Jim Elliot's faithfulness. He he went because he had a call, and he heard that call. And he wanted to fulfill God's will and and keep going in that. And he had to die in order for it to happen the way God wanted it to. You may never know what you have done for someone. What you have done for God's kingdom here on earth. It may take until you die for it to happen. But God's just that powerful. Nothing surprises him. And think even after you die, you can still be of use to God for his glory. What did Jesus say when Lazarus had died? He said it wasn't that it wasn't for death that he would die. He said it was for the glory of God. And Jesus rose up Lazarus. He raised him from the dead. And even in Lazarus' death, God was glorified. That's God's power. And I'll close with this. This is what Jim Elliot said in some of his diaries. He said, I'm compelled by his call from the throne above, from those round about, and even from the damned souls below. I dare not stay home while others perish. The condemnation is written on the dust of their Bible covers. He was speaking about the church there. And that one really hit me. And after he said that quote, after he said the one I just read to you. What is he saying there? He's saying there's no movement in the church today. There's no movement. Nobody wants to tell people about Jesus anymore. And then he, he finishes with a quote from this. And many of you might know this quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You're not a fool if you give what you can't keep. And what can you not keep? To gain what you can, that which you cannot lose. You can't keep your salvation. You can't. Not on your own terms. It's only by Jesus. And you gain that which you cannot lose. Through Jesus, you have assurance in your salvation. Now tell people about that. And people think that they can't be used by God. But you can. It doesn't matter if you work in a grocery store or if you're a police officer or if you're an evangelist. You can. I, I want to give you a challenge today. Before you even go to work, go to school, whatever, 
I want you to pray that God would send someone your way that you can tell them about Jesus and watch as he does it. It may come up in just a, a random conversation. I remember one time I prayed that on the school bus, or the school bus ride to school, and then some kid in science class said, Cordell, how do you get saved? It's so direct. And, it, and he does it all the time. If you want to work for God, he's willing that he will help you. He'll send people your way. No, one of the reasons I have felt the, the call to be a, a pastor or a preacher is because the only thing I look at when I go down the streets or, or I'm on the road, um, I see a bunch of dead people. People that are dead in their sins. And it hurts my heart because when I went to Louisville, all I could see, I, I, I was there for a competition. I got first place and everything, but that did not matter to me because the only thing I was concerned about was the people there that were dead in their sins. You go to Louisville, there's, there's homeless people all over the streets. Drugs, crime, Everything. We, even, we were walking down an alley. We were walking down the sidewalk and we saw a drug deal going. Well, it happened. This world is lost and it's going to take the Christians, the light of the world. And we have Jesus, the light in us. But how are we showing that light? How can you show your light if you hide it all the time? You can't hide it in your video games. You can't hide it in your home. You can't do it. You've got to show it. You've got to show that light to the world. What bothers me so much is that people just do not care for the lost people anymore. A heart should be broken every day for them. And I pray as I get older that God will just give me a heart for those people. That I won't go a day without crying for them. We should pray for them. Pray for that. And another thing about this guy, Jim Elliot. You see, the reason I'm so fascinated by this man is because me and him are a lot alike. Because he's a fanatic. He's a Jesus freak. And he openly admitted that in his diaries. And the one thing that, the, the one quote that he has in his diary, he, he says this, he says, called by the throne above, what is called by the cultured citizen as, a cultured citizen of Christendom, fanaticism, is the same calling that led Jesus to the cross. It hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, the cultured citizen of Christianity, in other words, pew warmers, people that come to church but don't take nothing from it and don't do anything about uh, helping people come to the Lord. In other words, those people call people who are called by the, that Jesus calls them in fanaticism, that's what they call it. We're fanatics. Even to people who are Christians, I'm called a fanatic. 
But what else can I be? What else can I be? I like this quote that someone wrote a long time ago. It says, it was responding to it as well. When was it ever well with me without thee? When was it ever well with me without thee? When was I ever me without thee? That's what I say. Christ should make up everything in your life. Make up all your relationships. Make up everything about you. It should make up your whole heart. And though it's hard sometimes, you have to keep focusing on him. Keep directing your sight towards him. Aim to his glory all the time. And I guess this message sort of brings up another question about faith. Not a lot of people have it anymore, especially Christians. And we're the ones that even know the definition. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. We know that, but we don't live it. See, faith is like this. Having faith in Jesus Christ is like this. Imagine you go on a missionary trip, maybe to another country, and maybe you meet the one. Maybe you meet the one, as people call it. You meet the person of your dreams, and you know you'll marry them. And then you come back home, and everyone says, uh, I don't see them. You must be crazy. Uh, but I saw them, and I know who they are, and I love them. But you're crazy. That's, that's, we don't even see them. But I know them. That's faith. People will call you crazy. People will call you just a lunatic. That's what they thought Jesus was. But that's faith. And people say you have to have sight to believe, but you don't. That's what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. So imagine this is the things, the things that are hoped for. Faith is the, is the substance, the atoms that make up that which is hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's quite clear. <laughs> we tend to take man's words over God's words. And what's always fascinated me about people is that they don't believe in faith because they can't see something. Well, you, you never saw the time you were born, did you? You never saw it. Heck, if you're an atheist, you never saw the Big Bang. You never saw the universe span out of nothing. It's the evidence of things not seen. And even as a Christian, it'll be hard sometimes. But that's what faith is for. We have faith in Jesus Christ. That even when times get tough, even when things don't go our way, we can still have faith in him to accomplish his will in our life. You see, what I want is I want Christ to take over my life. I want to be a vessel for him as we all should. And it's not just because I'm called to be a preacher or a pastor. It's because everyone's called for something. People think that God calls people to salvation and that he does. But that's not where he doesn't just stop there. 
And don't think that a job can hinder you from doing it. Because Paul was a tent maker. You can do great things for the glory of God. But it takes motivation from you. You've got to want to do it. You've got to want to do it. People ask me all the time at school, you know, you know, how do I witness to people? How do I talk to people? I'm not a preacher. And I say, I don't even know how to talk to people half the time. Jesus does most of it. Most of the time when I'm up here, it's Jesus. It's not me. And I'm sure Jonathan will tell you the same thing. It's something that comes over you. That's what the Holy Spirit is. And you receive him when you come to salvation. We need to live these Faithful lives for Jesus Christ. And how can we have, and some people might say, how can you have faith in something you can't see? Because he has shown me here. He's shown me in his word. He's shown me how he's provided. He's shown me the prophecies that have been fulfilled, the hundreds of prophecies. Look them up when you go home. There's hundreds of them. He's shown me all those things in his word. And I could, I've only saw this much of it, not even this much of it. And his word is living and it breathes and it dwells in me. It reads me more than I read it. Do you want to know how you stay faithful? We stay in the word. Stay in the word of God. You want to know what you're called to? Stay in the word of God. You want to be more faithful in your marriage? Be in the Word of God. You want to be more faithful in your life in general? Be in the Word of God. He's provided it for you. I better start wrapping it up. Mom says I'm a little bit long-winded. But I suppose that's all right. He knows. And this last sentence I have for the, the message is because, because he knew and knows we can have assurance in him. We can have faith and hope in him to accomplish his will within our lives. We can have faith in him. Even though we don't see what he's doing, we've seen what he's done. See, God's providence is hindsight. See, we've seen what he's done for us. If God's done something miraculous in your life in the past, or maybe even now, raise your hand. A lot of people. Not dwell on that. Remember what it was like. Maybe what it was like to, to, to come to Jesus and, and salvation. And remember that, what he's done for you in your life. And that's what we'll keep you going. I guess I'm going to. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how to formally wrap it up. So. You know, in the church, we are always looking for an initiative or something to encourage us to go out and, and witness, to go knock on doors, or to talk to our friends or our neighbors or or anything like that. And we've been trained, um, especially in the SBC and the KBC, that we got to wait for an initiative, right? Uh, we get the mailer, let's go out and we'll follow it with everybody else. And that's good 
to, to go do that. But what's better is exactly what Cordell was talking about. You ask God and you go do it every day. You don't wait to be told. You don't wait for a, you know, a mailer to come to your house and say, okay, it's time for us to go out. You just go do it at your job, at school. Cordell's been doing that. He, he's been a, a Jesus freak for as long as I've known him. And um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. You just keep doing that. You keep seeking the Lord. And you keep doing that. And what you were talking about, what Jesus knows. In John 17 there, what he was talking about there, the first ones that were, that were given to Jesus by the Father were the disciples. He didn't lose any of them, he said, except for the son of perdition. But then Jesus goes on, I think verse number 20, chapter 17 there. Jesus said that he prays not for those only, but also for those who will believe. And that's us. That's us. Some 2,000 years later almost, we're the ones that are the result of the work of the disciples that went out and shared the gospel. And so we've already been given our marching orders. We've already been called and told to go ye therefore.